Section six of the Mystery of the Ocean Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. J. Frank. The Mystery of the Ocean Star by W. Clark Russell. Section six. Hazardous Voyages. Leaky ships, says Captain Ridley in a little work published in 1854, are very disheartening to most seamen, and particularly to those not used to them. I had been at sea myself about twelve years before I knew what a tight ship was, and in some cases it was either pump or sink with us. Those were the days of timber frames. It is iron that has rendered the sailor timorous on this head in our time. When an iron vessel starts a butt, or as hold, as they call it, the case of the people on board is very commonly a bad one. It is a hundred to one that she founders, if she be out upon the ocean, away from tugs or a convenient beach. On the other hand, it was no strange sight in the wooden period to pass ships with bright water gushing out of the scupper-holes, sure sign of their taking it in as fast as they ejected it, yet making no fuss with their signal-bunting. A glimpse of the deck as the fabric was inclined by the sea showed a handful of men hard at work at the break or the fly, and so, spouting like a half-spent whale, the winged structure would go lazily rolling into the blue distance of the horizon. Hazardous as must be a voyage in a leaky ship, the adventure in a former age was often stoutly and deliberately entered upon. I find a good example of this in the account of a voyage from Hull to Rhode Island. The ship was named the American, and was loaded with coals, grindstones, bale goods, and hemp. In hauling out she took the ground, and lay straining for four days. When she was got off the crew had to rig both pumps, then finding her very leaky, the whole of them left her. The captain went to the owner, who told him to carry the vessel out, as he could not consent to have her repaired at home. A fresh crew were shipped, and away went the vessel out of the Humber with a fair wind and tide. By this time she was pretty deep, and to prevent the men from being alarmed, the captain hid the sounding-rod. Shortly afterwards he ordered the vessel to be pumped out, and went to work with the rest of the crew, but both pumps having been kept going for an hour without any encouraging result, the men said that the ship was too old to suck, meaning that they would never be able to free her of water. The captain answered that the wind would prevent him from returning to the Humber, were he willing to do so, that they were now at sea and must either pump or drown. He added that he hoped the ship would grow tighter presently, but that if she did not he would put into Harwich for repairs. This appears to have satisfied the men who worked so heartily that, at the expiration of four hours, they found one pump constantly kept going enough. The season was the winter, the ocean the North Atlantic, the ship a crazy leaky craft. The captain, minding nothing, headed right away for the American coast. He was beset with severe Jack Norwesters, as he called them, and heavy gales from other points of the compass. His ship was coated with ice, and his crew half dead with cold. He had sailed on the 29th of September, and on the 24th of December, 
was in soundings, but mistook the coast, headed to the eastward with the pump going continuously and the lead every half hour, and anchored in a black night full of frost and ice in nine fathoms of water with the land close aboard. After further struggles, which brought the date into January, the whole passage occupied about three months and a half, we weighed anchor and worked the ship safe into the harbor of Newport in Rhode Island, to the no small amazement of our merchant, Mr. Joseph Harrison, and all the gentlemen of that place. I find an extraordinary instance of the triumph of spirit and perseverance in this way in William Nicholson's Treatise on Practical Navigation, 1796. The vessel was His Majesty's ship Elizabeth. She was nearly wrecked by a gale of wind in the Indian Ocean whilst homeward bound, and was only kept afloat by incessant pumping and bailing at the hatchways. In another storm they lost their rudder. The ship had to be trapped, bound around with ropes passed under and over her to keep her together. She had left Bombay on the 16th of December, 1763, and she was off Spithead on the 11th of July, seven months en route. But in what condition? She was ordered to Chatham to be paid off, but before leaving Spithead it was deemed necessary to repair her upper works, so that she might hold together as far as the Medway. A number of dockyard shipwrights and caulkers arrived on board, and, says the author, were surprised beyond expression to see the ship frapped fore and aft upon both decks, the decks and sides all covered over with canvas, and the ship so much broke or hogged it was frightful to behold, and we thought it unsafe to take off any of the frappings. The caulkers and shipwrights left the ship in a hurry, believing that she would sink under them as they stood upon her. I am not sure that the spirit of the English sailor is not better illustrated by such stories as these than by all that can be told of him as a gunner and a boarder. Next to the Elizabeth stands the peak. What is finer in all the records as a piece of seamanship and a specimen of resolution than the navigation by Eos and his men of that rudderless ship from the Canadian Bay, where she struck to St. Helens, where she let go the anchor. But the really hazardous voyage properly comes under the heading of ocean boating. There are dozens of instances of deliverances by the agency of the small boat, so miraculous that, related as fiction, they would be regarded as extreme experiments on the capacity of human credulity. Let me give a notable instance drawn from a narrative entitled, A Small Monument of Great Mercy in the Miraculous Deliverance of Five Persons from Slavery at Algiers, in a Canvas Boat, with an account of the great distress and extremities which they endured at sea, by William Oakley, 1644. The author relates, in the course of his narrative, that having met with Reverend Mr. Spratt, who was likewise captive among the Moors, he, that is Oakley, along with other Christian slaves, were permitted by their masters to have this clergyman to preach to them in a cellar. In this cellar seven of them, all sworn to secrecy, set to work upon a boat. They first provided a piece of wood twelve feet long, cut in two, that it might escape observation, but jointed in the middle. 
Next they procured the timbers or ribs, which were each in three pieces, and jointed in two places. They also managed to obtain as much canvas as would cover the boat twice over, with some pitch, tar, and tallow for converting it into a tarpaulin. The little structure, the full details of which are given, though I have no space for them here, was put together in the cellar and then taken to pieces again. It was a matter of difficulty, says the author, to get the pieces conveyed out of the city, but William Adams carried the keel and hid it at the bottom of a hedge. The rest was carried away with similar precaution. Eventually they got the boat afloat. There were seven of them, but at the last moment two of them said they would rather continue in slavery than be drowned, and so backed out of the adventure. Taking a solemn farewell of our two companions left behind, and wishing them as much happiness as could be hoped for in slavery, and they to us as long life as could be expected by men going to their graves, we launched out on the 8th June, 1644, a night ever to be remembered. The company consisted of John Anthony, William Adams, John Jepless, John the Carpenter, and William Oakley. Five stout men in a canvas boat twelve feet long, without helm, sail, or compass, their provisions a little bread instantly spoilt by the salt water that soaked through the canvas, and two goatskins full of fresh water, to which the tanned skins imparted a nauseous quality. The description that follows is, of course, the familiar but not the less terrible story of the anguish of men in direful extremity. They managed to reach the island of Majorca nevertheless, then took ship to Gibraltar, traveled by the foot-post by land to Cadiz, and were ultimately taken on board an English ship, commanded by Captain Smith of Kedriff, and reached the Downs in September 1644. In these days of huge ocean steamships, every allowance must be made for the general prejudice in favor of tonnage. In former times a very small craft sufficed for a considerable voyage. One of the East India ship's longboats, I find in an old record of 1759, rigged of twelve tons with only six hands and a mate on board, arrived express from the Brazils, with an account of the arrival there of some ships which were believed to have fallen to the hands of the French. The old salts went for the sea in whatever came to hand, and made as little trouble in their pinnaces or cockboats of a gale of wind in the middle of the Atlantic as the deal men of to-day make of the seas of the Channel whilst cruising about for jobs in their galley-punts or knock-toes. Captain Bly, of His Majesty's ship Bounty, was not one of those shining characters towards whose qualities one's heart leans affectionately whilst reading about them, but he seems to have embarked on that enormous boating trip into which Mr. Christian and the others forced him with but little concern if it were not that he mistrusted his stock of food and rum. The Lord Mayor of London, by way of satisfying de Mandelslow, who had narrowly escaped drowning, that seafaring people run many risks, told him a story of a Dutch seaman whose sentence for some crime had been changed from death into banishment to the island of St. Helena. The Dutch sailor, dreading solitude, determined to hazard his life at any rate, rather than be marooned. 
he dug up a coffin in which a sea officer had been buried the day before, and removed the corpse, then cut out a board which he fitted to the coffin as a rudder, launched the ghastly bark, got into it, and floated out to sea. It happened that the ship to which he had belonged lay becalmed a few miles distant. Harris's Collection of Voyages and, continued Sir Edmund Wright, the Lord Mayor, the ship's crew observing so odd a kind of vessel floating on the surface of the water, thought it had been an apparition, till, coming nearer and nearer the ship, they stood amazed at this unaccountable boldness of the man, who had ventured so far in two or three pieces of boards without being assured whether he should be received or not. It being put to the question, it was at last resolved he should be taken on board which was done accordingly, and he returned to Holland, where he lived afterwards in the town of Horn. This same Lord Mayor told de Mandelsloe another story, which much resembles the account I have already given of the escape of the five English seamen from the Moors in 1644. Four sailors who had been taken by the Algerines resolved to make a small boat and put to sea in her. They took five boards from the storeroom, but what sort of storeroom is not told, nor did his lordship name the scene of this adventure. Of two of which they made a bottom for the boat, two more supplied the sides, and the fifth for the prow and poop, their quilt serving for tow, in other words, for oakum, for caulking. When the boat was ready and launched, they found it would only hold two. Two only, therefore, could go. These were an Englishman and a Dutchman, who, having found means to provide a pair of oars, a piece of sail, and a slender portion of bread and fresh water, boldly put to sea, having, as the Lord Mayor said, neither compass nor astrology, this latter being one of the instruments, Jacob's staff, and the fore or cross staff being others, by which the ancient mariners measured the altitude of the sun." They had not long started before they were overtaken by a storm, before which they had to run, their bread was soaked into pulp, they lost their fresh water, and their whole time was occupied in bailing. They were eventually driven on to the coast of Barbary, a famous hunting ground for the early sea fictionists, where they set about to enlarge their boat, which they had barely managed when they were forced to float again by the inhabitants who wanted to kill them. For ten days they were washed about in an ark assuredly very much less seaworthy than the coffin in which the Dutchman had escaped from St. Helena, and were finally cast upon the Spanish coast, between Alicante and Valencia, where, concluded my lord, who related these tales as he sat banqueting, being civilly entertained by the inhabitants, they after came into England." These strange deliverances recall a curious incident mentioned in some of the accounts of the Spanish discoveries and settlements. One of the adventurers was Vasquez Nunez, a person of good family, handsome, and a scholar. He had formerly sailed with Bastidas, but after having received charge of one of the settlements, he was sentenced to death for betrayal of his trust, or for some offense not clearly stated. He effected his escape somewhat after the manner of the St. Helena Dutchman. A Spanish ship, commanded by Uciso, was taking in a quantity of bread for stores. 
Nunez put himself into one of the bread casks and was shipped for forecastle use. He lay in hiding until the ship had put about three hundred miles between her and the land, and then made his appearance on deck. The captain, who had been strictly charged not to carry away any offender, was so vexed that he threatened to put Nunez ashore on the first desert island he came to. But on some persons of distinction who were in the vessel interceding, he granted the handsome adventurous young Spaniard his protection. This was possibly as hazardous a voyage as ever man embarked upon. The perils of the sea were multiplied in olden times by the slowness of ships as sailors. Their holds were small, their companies numerous, and weeks or months of dull and languid stemming or plying often terminated in disease, famine, madness, and misery not to be expressed. Every week might witness a new thickening of marine growths upon the ship's bottom, causing the unwieldy form to move more slowly yet through the billows. There are brigs, says a writer in 1800, that will not sail above three knots upon a wind, one of which is to leeward. Other brigs with smooth water and fine gales will not go more than four and a half knots large. For my part, I would rather be with Dampier, flying before the tempest in his canoe, than tumbling, wind-jammed for months in some of the old ships one reads about, in such a vessel, say, as the Dolphin Sloop, which, when fallen in with, had been one hundred and sixty-five days at sea, though the distance she had to measure was no more than the ocean between the Canary Islands and New York. For one hundred and sixteen days the crew had been in a state of famine. They declared to the captain who rescued them that the ship's provisions had been exhausted three months before. The dolphin is but a type of the slow old tub, and the hazards of such voyages. The most dismal of all the marine narratives relate to such craft. There is some excitement in delivering oneself from slavery or death by entering a bread-cask, or sailing away in a coffin or a canvas boat. A man under such circumstances is supported by the sense of romance and the obligation of adventuring his life for the preservation of it. But to be months at sea in an old butter-box that won't go to windward, that is only able to run sluggishly out of one adverse wind into another, in whose lazarette the stock of provisions grows smaller and smaller every day, whose crevices swarm with the gaunt and horrible anatomies of starving rats, with eyes rendered crimson and sparkling by the fires of famine. Let us be thankful that these are the days of twelve knots an hour, more or less. End of section six. Recording by M. J. Frank, Portland, Oregon.